Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode of the podcast, Tabitha Mueller breaks down what's going on in Douglas County after a statement from a library in support of the Black Lives Matter movement triggered a public fight with the county sheriff and some community members and drew national attention. After that, I talk with Melody Rose, the new chancellor at the Nevada System of Higher Education, about the challenges facing the system in the time of the coronavirus, as well as some of her goals and priorities now that she's on the job. At the end of the show, Tabitha joins us once again to talk to Black Rabbit Mead, a bar in Reno that has been struggling during the shutdown, and how they're working to stay afloat. But before we get to the rest of our show, we still have a coronavirus update for you. Our healthcare reporter Megan Messerly is off today, but we still wanted to update you with some of the numbers and a few of the coronavirus headlines from this week. As of recording this on the morning of Friday, September 4th, the number of confirmed cases of COVID-19 reached 70,338 while total deaths numbered 1,365. The state's seven-day average test positivity rate sat at 14.4% Thursday, while the cumulative rate stayed steady at 11.6%. Hospitalizations, meanwhile, have continued to decline. The total number of hospitalizations from the coronavirus sat at 631 Thursday, down 44 from the day prior. In the headlines, Governor Steve Sisolak called for patience in a press conference Thursday, marking six months since the state first verified a case of COVID-19. He also said the state will be evaluating which restrictions will stay in place as overall trends improve, including reassessing limits on houses of worship, youth sports, and business meetings. He did not, however, provide a timeline for when the state may take action on those limitations. Nevada's COVID-19 task force decided on Thursday to delay a decision to reopen bars in Clark and Washoe County for at least two more weeks. The state's COVID-19 response director, Caleb Cage, told county officials that though trends have improved over the last month, the task force did not want to risk reversing progress by reopening prematurely. The task force did clarify that bar tops at restaurants such as sushi bars would be allowed to open under existing social distancing requirements. For more on the coronavirus, you can find all these stories and more on the NevadaIndependent.com. When a public library in rural Douglas County sent out a letter supporting the Black Lives Matter movement, it made national headlines. But it wasn't for the content of that letter, it was for what came next a response from the local sheriff that told the library, if you need help, don't bother calling 911. Nevada Independent intern Tabitha Mueller picks up the story from there. Amy Dodson is the library director in Douglas County. She's worked at the library for almost six years and spends most of her day conducting outreach and working with staff to improve access to information and library services for the community. So when she and her staff drafted a diversity statement which contained a phrase saying hashtag Black Lives Matter, all in the midst of massive nationwide protests against police violence following the death of George Floyd, she said she never could have imagined the firestorm that followed. So the fact that somebody got a glimpse of that and, and kind of blew it up on social media, that was a surprise in and of itself. Normally our board meetings are pretty routine and mundane, they're not that exciting. So... <laughs> So, yeah, it was it was a big shock that it has blown up to this degree and I would be caught in this. The Douglas County Library wasn't the only one to send out a statement on systemic racism or use the phrase Black Lives Matter in the wake of the George Floyd protests in June. 
In fact, it was only one of dozens of libraries that did so, including the Nevada Library Association. But the Douglas County Library statement drew a unique outrage, one that claimed the library's support for Black Lives Matter was a much deeper political signal. In a letter published on the Douglas County Sheriff's website, Sheriff Dan Coverly equated the Black Lives Matter statement with support for violence against police, saying, quote, Numerous Black Lives Matter protests have resulted in violence, property damage, and the closing of local businesses, sometimes permanently. To support this movement is to support violence and to openly ask for it to happen in Douglas County. His letter said that because the library had an obvious lack of support or trust with the Douglas County Sheriff's Office, that it should not feel the need to call 911 for any disturbances. Quote, I wish you good luck with disturbances and lewd behavior, since those are just some of the recent calls my office has assisted you with in the past. Sheriff Coverly didn't respond to requests for comment, but in a follow-up letter, he walked back his original statements. He said the sheriff's office would continue to respond to calls from the library and that he had intended his letter to provide comment on the diversity statement. Quote, This has been a difficult time to be a law enforcement professional and can be disheartening when we perceive that our office may be under attack. Coverly went on to say that, quote, My response was rooted in my belief that these issues need to be openly discussed in a way that values diversity and law enforcement. A peaceful protest was planned, with about 50 protesters eventually arriving in Douglas County on August 8th. They were faced with roughly 1,000 counter-protesters sporting Blue Lives Matter paraphernalia. The counter-protesters heckled and accosted the protesters according to KUNR. Eventually, the protesters left early, telling various outlets they feared for their safety. In one of the hundreds of comments the library received from the public, a woman named Linda Miller called on library officials during a public meeting on August 25th to give her examples of incidents that occurred at the public library that exhibited discrimination. If you look up hashtag Black Lives Matters website, they are a Marxist organization who wants to dismantle the nuclear family, remove husbands, men from the family home to defund law enforcement. Things came to a head when three of the five library trustees voted to conduct a pricey investigation examining the steps that led to the library's letter in the first place. They said the library was at risk of losing public faith and funding, and that as a government-funded entity, the library needed to maintain objectivity. Right now we're being accused of having no integrity and being very biased, and we have to get to the bottom of this matter as clearly and as unbiased as possible and move forward, because preserving the library and its reputation is the goal. So why did Dodson do it? I think we have more non-white people than maybe we're aware of, and that's because smaller communities within a larger community are often unrecognized, unheard, underrepresented. And so I think that those numbers might be a little bit different. And I think it's number one to reach that uncounted audience, but it's also to remind the public that we're here for everyone and that we don't discriminate. Libraries are no stranger to social movements in the U.S. Though most libraries followed segregation laws during Jim Crow, some librarians at segregated libraries spoke out, resigned as a sign of protest, or covertly helped non-white people access resources. People demonstrated at libraries with sit-ins, demanding equal access to the space and resources available to white patrons. 
As space is designed to encourage and facilitate freedom of thought and intellectual curiosity, it makes sense that libraries are centers of discourse and debate, Nevada Library Association President-elect Todd Colgrove said. I, I think things like this seem bad because we thought this was all a solved problem, but it's really just a matter of uncovering and growing pains. If it were not for the library director and its staff with the full support of its library board trying to move in the direction. Would this conversation be happening in Douglas County today? For now, Dodson says she worries about the financial strain of the investigation and the stress it will put on her staff. But board trustee Lisa Foley, who resigned after other board members supported an investigation, worries that the backlash may trigger a chilling effect. I'm concerned that our community doesn't feel safe for marginalized people. I hope that people don't give up hope, that they are courageous, that that people who are in a position of leadership or in a position of privilege can, if nobody else does, I think it's up uh, on their shoulders to be leaders and like the library potentially could be to stick up for those who, who might be frightened. If you want to read more of Tabitha's reporting on what's happening in Douglas County, you can find it on the NevadaIndependent.com. And now, an interview between Melody Rose, the new NC Chancellor, and Jacob Solis, our higher education reporter and producer of this very podcast. Melody Rose is the newest chancellor for the Nevada system of higher education, having just taken over the job on September 1st. A 25-year veteran of higher ed who even spent some of that time as the Oregon University System Chancellor and president of Merrillhurst University, she takes the top job in Nevada at a time when the system is facing multiple challenges, not the least of which being the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. With all that, Chancellor Rose, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm pleased to be here. So I'd like to get some of your priorities as chancellor here in a second, but I think I need to start where I left off, and that's the coronavirus pandemic. So colleges nationwide spent months planning for a fall semester, and I think it's fair to say that a lot of those colleges, the rollout of those plans has been rockier than they might have expected, or at least rockier than they were planning for. How would you rate Nevada's preparations for the fall? And now with a week and change under our belts, how do you think that's going? You know, I I think that everybody has been anticipating an uncertain fall term. And I think that one of the things that Nevada did exceptionally well was to embrace that uncertainty. And so what I see when I read all eight of the plans that were developed by the institutions is a high degree of flexibility and ability to pivot based on conditions. And I think that's the moment we're living in, right? This is a moment about resilience and ability to deal with uncertainty. And the plans, as I've reviewed them, do exactly that. So I think we're in good shape heading into this second week of the term. And I I look forward to working with the presidents and other stakeholders to, to continue the good work. I think I'd like to turn to uh, that flexibility that you mentioned and this idea that the, the, you know, that the institutions are ready to pivot if they need to pivot. 
the fall is a sort of uncertain place right now with the coronavirus. We don't know what's going to happen when the flu shows up. Are you confident then that the flexibility of the institutions to either pivot to online, to stay with in-person, that that is ready and that the, the institutions are able to absorb the problems that might arise um, in the next couple of months here? I think we're really well positioned, and I think so for a few reasons. One, of course, is that we have a lot of expertise in healthcare. So the fact that we can draw on local knowledge in our own faculty and administration puts us in a really enviable position to use that local knowledge and area expertise to the benefit of our students, staff, and faculty is something that you know not every institution has nationwide. Not every system has nationwide. So we're, we're in an, a position of strength when it comes to that. You know, the other aspect of strength that that starts us off this term, though, is the fact that we dealt with this issue from the beginning of needing to be what we are calling high flex. So we've got a larger than usual number of courses already online. Each institution looked at its particular situation and particular student needs and infrastructure and made really savvy locally based decisions about the balance of classes it could manage online versus in person. So we're already positioned really well. And I think that you've got as great a chance as you could possibly have for our, our plans to go off exactly as expected. Okay. So an extension of the pandemic has really been the economic crisis that's followed because of the shutdowns it caused. And for Enshi, that's been pretty severe budget cuts from the state side of things. Now in 2021, the fiscal year, the system has seen over $135 million in budget cuts. But a lot of that was offset with one-time payments and revenue offsets, that kind of thing. That's gone for 2022. So for your priorities and your vision... How do you foresee the system navigating this budget crisis in fiscal year 22 and beyond? So it's important to remember that our demographics are pretty favorable to weathering these conditions. So compared to some other states in the Midwest and the Northeast, where the college-going population has been in rapid decline, we don't have that challenge here in Nevada. And in fact, we have seen stable enrollments to small growth enrollments this fall. So I think compared to other places in the country, we start from a position of strength. Now, what I would also say is that, you know, I believe very firmly when it comes to tough budget conditions that you can't cut your way out of a crisis. You really do have to think about growing your way out of a crisis to the best of your ability. And here's where I come to some of my priorities. So one of the things that we are also focused on in Nevada is the incredible wealth of diversity that we have in our state. And you know that we've been doing a better and better job matriculating brown and black students into our institutions, but we don't see the kind of persistence and completion among those populations that we need to see. So one of the best things you can do in a crisis is to keep your customers. One of the best things you can do is to wrap your arms around those students, provide them with the scaffolding they need, and increase your persistence and completion numbers. That's going to buoy your revenue side of the ledger. And, and I, I start by focusing there. To your point, though, 
This is going to be a long road. We're not alone. The whole world is facing this. And I do think that there are some cost savings that the system and our institutions will be looking at very seriously. So one of the advantages of being a holistic system is we can look around and say, well, what are the kinds of back of the house shared services that we can scale, uh, that maybe each institution doesn't need to provide for themselves, but that we can come together uh, and create some cost savings. So those are the kinds of things initially that we'll be looking at when we consider those budgets in the out years. Okay. I want to dig into something you mentioned, and that's the retention of the black and brown minority students at Nevada institutions. Obviously, UNLV is, you know, has, is a, a majority minority school. And, and obviously, the entire system has, like you mentioned, many black and Hispanic and Asian American students. So in your view, what is the best way to maintain levels of enrollment among those students or, or to grow those student populations and make sure once they're there that they complete their degrees? One of the things is that we have to really think differently about how we recruit students. So different populations of students, different demographics uh, want to be approached in different ways. And so really devising a sophisticated, inclusive recruitment program means recognizing those differences across target populations. So for example, you know, from from my time in Oregon, I can tell you that some of the best recruiting we did of Latino and Latina students was through non-traditional events, farmers markets, churches, a lot of different locales where communities come together and gather and not necessarily focusing just on your high schools. The other thing to put into play here is that it matters who's doing the recruiting, right? Who are the folks that we're sending out on the road to recruit, attract, and retain these students? Do they look like those prospective students? Do they speak their languages? Do they have a cultural affinity? Having all of that at the ready really makes a difference in terms of advertising yourself and truly being a welcoming representative place. And then in terms of persistence and completion, there too, what students experience on their campuses in terms of student life, in terms of the programmatic opportunities for them, if they have come from challenging high schools, getting them up to speed, those are all resources that we need to bring to bear and invest in, in order to support all students getting across the dais on commencement day. Okay. So as an extension of this is the financial side of things. And this all ties back to the pandemic, because not only have the institutions and the system have been hit financially by the pandemic, but students have too, and their families, right? That, you know, everyone is strapped for cash right now, and the economy just isn't where it was a year ago. So when it comes to making sure that the affordability of school in Nevada is there, right, even if the state is low tuition, perhaps, that it is an affordable state to go to college, how will you as chancellor try to uh, maintain that affordability or expand it and make sure that students who are entering the system aren't leaving in massive debt? Uh, it's a great question. I, I think there's no better, bigger travesty in higher education in America today than what I call the problem of debt but no degree. So we don't really serve students, and I would go so far as to say it's not really an ethical practice if we invite students into our campus without the necessary supports and scaffolding, and they drop out before completion and carry debt along the way. 
So we absolutely have to be mindful of this challenge. That's not particular to Nevada by any stretch. We're a very affordable state. And, and I think that that commitment from the regents and from elected officials has been very consistent. But we need to have a conversation as a nation about the fact that school is not just about tuition, room, and board. And I can, I, I'll share that as a mother of two college students right now, tuition, room, and board is only part of the expense of going to school, right? There's lost income because you're studying and going to class. You may have daycare needs that you wouldn't otherwise have. You've got uh, transportation costs, which can be very difficult in certain parts of the state if you don't own a vehicle of your own. So we need to be thinking, I think as a nation, and certainly this is part of the conversation that I will bring home here to Nevada about all of the expenses associated with going to college. All of that said, data still tells us that the return on investment for getting a college degree is very high. So even as students are making tough decisions to be in school right now, when they and their families may have suffered economic loss, we got to keep our eyes on the prize too and understand that that return on investment is there. And what we can do at the system is try to keep our costs low and therefore our prices low and bring in as much as we can in terms of some of the wonderful scholarship opportunities that we've already begun to build. I, I want to ask about accountability because um, this, the Nevada system of higher education has for a long time, we'll say, butted heads with the legislature when it comes to issues of accountability. And even now we see the, the final stages of, of question one, uh, literally to take the region side of the constitution. So from your view as chancellor, you're an outsider coming from Oregon. What's your responsibility in making sure that the legislature, that politicians understand where you're coming from and making sure that the, the system itself and you and everyone under you is accountable to everyone in the state? I appreciate that question. I thank you for raising it. And it's you know not lost on me as a new voter here in Nevada that I'm going to have to make a decision on election day as well. And what I can tell you is this, the first job I do in these early weeks and months is to listen. And so one way to be accountable is to listen to stakeholders of all kinds. And one of the things that I very much look forward to doing is to listen to students, staff, faculty, policymakers, the governor's office to understand what they need from their system of higher education and how can we answer questions that arise for them. You know, it's my view that the state of Nevada, like like many states, has made a significant investment in the future of its citizens through higher education. And so we who are stewards of that investment owe a debt of transparency and accountability back to the people of Nevada. And so it will be absolutely my job one to listen to folks, to answer questions openly and honestly, and to work together with all of our stakeholders in order to get ourselves where we need to be. Okay. And just following up on that, obviously we're heading into this, we're going to have more budget cuts and more discussions about the budget and, and the ways that the universities and the colleges will have to trim down in the next couple of years to come. And so 
will your system, you know, your chancellor, you're leading the charge on this, will you ensure that the, the data that's coming out, the budgets, the cuts, that everything is as transparent as it can be in the next couple of years? Well, absolutely. That is our commitment as an institution. And what I can say that I have appreciated in my early days here in getting to know the system, even before arriving in the office today, is that Nevada's open meeting laws are some of the most robust in the nation. So we have an opportunity through that to be very clear, to be very upfront, and for folks to listen in to our meetings, participate in that way as citizens do and should and can. And it's our honor to uphold those responsibilities and and steward as best we can. Okay. Well, with that, those are all the questions that I have. But before I let you go, I always do this. Is there anything that I didn't ask that you still wanted to say? Well, you know, I I did want to share with you a couple of my biggest goals. I've already said job one is to really be on a listening tour. And we have a lot of constituencies in higher education, as you know. And so a lot of my time will be spent with them and hearing from folks and trying to get a finer sense of, of what everyone needs from us. But beyond that, I see two really critical opportunities for us. And these are, these are among the top reasons that I was interested in serving in this role. One of them is that we are one of a few systems in the nation that combines community colleges with four-year institutions. And that provides us with a unique opportunity to assist students in moving through the pipeline of higher education. So, of course, you know, somebody might start out just wanting to take a few classes to get a badge or a certificate to be recertified for employment that might turn into interest in an associate's degree. And then, you know, this prospective student might say, gosh, what would it take for for me to stretch and be that first person in our family to get a bachelor's degree in a system like ours, we can plug the holes in the pipeline all the way through, which allows us to lower the cost and time to degree for our students. So I am really excited about that potential and excited to look at the data uh, to understand where we can improve that pipeline for the benefit of of the state legislature who invests in all of this and, and for students. Secondly, I think we have an enormous and vital opportunity to close the achievement gap in the state. And as I mentioned in my earlier remarks, one of the things that attracted me to this opportunity is that the state has been doing a better and better job of getting diverse classes of students into their institutions that reflect the communities that they represent. But we still have work to persistence ambition. And there's a place where I think if we really create a laser focus with clear goals and outcomes and, and a passion for results, we could, we could be among the top states in the nation closing the achievement gap. And that would be the achievement of a lifetime. Okay. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Chancellor Rose, thanks so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. And now we hear from intern Tabitha Mueller as she talks with Jake Conway and Will Truce from Black Rabbit Meadery in Reno. 
so today I am here with the owners of Black Rabbit Mead, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Um, so first... Hi, my name is Jake Conway. And, and also over here we have... This is Will Truce. So Jake and Will, how did you guys decide to start Black Rabbit Mead? Tell me a little bit about the founding story. Sure. So we met as high school teachers down in Carson City. We worked with another teacher who was a beekeeper and he kept bees all around the Sierra Nevadas. He had a bunch of honey that had crystallized and he couldn't sell it. So he asked if we wanted to make mead out of it. His name's Al. He runs a company called Al Bees. So if you ever see it in stores, check it out. That hobby that we started with Al quickly became a passion and we moved out of Will's kitchen and down into a rented space in a basement. And and then when we found this space through Lead Dog and Nevada Sunset Winery, we kind of just went all in and decided to be Nevada's first meadery. Okay, so you guys just said we're going to take this, you know, honey and we're going to make meat out of it. Will, how did you get involved? You know, have you always liked meat? Is this... No, not necessarily. I didn't even know what meat was until Al had talked to us about making it. And this was years ago, but Al and I, we had shared an office and I have my master's in microbial ecology. And then Jake had done a bunch of homebrewing. So we decided to see what this mead thing was all about. And here we are years later, just loving every bit of it. And we originally were making what traditional mead is more like, and that's a high alcohol sweet mead. But then we discovered this new style of a, that's more like a dry honey cider. And so we worked really hard for years on getting a good base recipe for that and we finally got one and then have been doing having a lot of fun with it ever since coming out with all the different varieties that we have now and so you guys you opened what last year or what when did you exactly open the meadery and how has it been going since you opened it we opened just about a year ago actually we celebrated our one-year anniversary about two months ago and we didn't even know that it had came and gone because of all the craziness with the pandemic and so we're, we'll celebrate it at some point we'll create a year and four months anniversary i'm sure but yeah we we're lo located right between Lead Dog Brewing Company and the depot over here on East 4th Street, what's being known as the Brewery District in Reno, Nevada. And we got uh, a good lead on this building about two years ago. It was the folks over at Lead Dog Brewing that actually had just started leasing it out. They needed half of it for themselves for storage, and but they were excited to bring in someone else to uh, take the other half. And it was my dad and I, and then Jake on the weekends at night, because Jake's still a full-time high school teacher, that built it all out. I mean, with a lot of good friends and family and subcontractors to make sure that it was done right as well. So it was about a one year build out. And then sometime last summer, we opened the doors very gradually though, because we didn't have much mead to be able to sell to the public. And so we just were open on the weekends. And then by the fall time of last year, we were, we were chugging along pretty good. So things were going well for you guys then on kind of on track. I know that a lot of businesses, they have projected models and, you know, you go into debt and then you expect to kind of come out of that debt after a certain period of time, maybe making money. How has the pandemic kind of affected business for you guys? What's been going on there? 
Yeah, so it's been a little rough. We just started distribution through New West, which is a local distribution company, right before the pandemic came. So we sold a bunch of kegs to a bunch of really cool local bars. And then the pandemic hit, they all closed and no one reordered. So it kind of threw a wrench in everything. And then at the same time, we had to close our doors. So there was really no source of income for a while. We were able to start doing curbside, which has kind of kept us afloat. But, you know, it's not ideal in any sense. And it's still going to be a long, hard road getting out of this. But I think that we were on the right track to do so. And what's, what have been some creative solutions you guys have had to kind of come up with to navigate the rules and regulations that kind of keep coming down? Just doing curbside felt pretty creative, but there's certainly a variety of other ones. But curbside felt creative because we never thought we would be selling alcohol online. We were uh, excited to create a fun tap room and have some fun little folk shows and other gatherings here. So moving things online and then slinging meat on the curb, there was a lot of creative and critical thinking to just get that going. However, we've been able to do a few other things. We've had some great collaborations with other places, for instance, bars and other breweries. So we do a, a bit of a cocktail style mead now in which a, a bartender from a local bar will kind of come up with a fun recipe for us. And then we also work with breweries and come up with some more beer style meads in collaboration with them. And that's really fun. It gives us a strong sense of community. And every time we're, we release something new, it creates some good excitement for the folks that are in, into us. And of course, they're for increases curbside sales and there's been just a lot of brainstorming as well about you know once we do open what are all the things that we can we can do and so it's not all bad in regards to what the pandemic brought but because it did spawn some some good collaborations and some creative ideas and also some long-held ideas you know we're doing a, a pourable honey now that's being infused with delicious things like truffle oil or uh, balsamic lemon vinegar and so you know the pandemic did give us a bit of time to step back and, and focus on some of those efforts too and then one of the things I was wondering about, too, is I know you guys have been working a little bit with some of this, you know, city council and trying to, you know, advocate for some bar reopenings down here. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, the the regulatory world right now is wild. And I mean, it, I mean, it feels like we're in the wilderness to a degree and somewhat understandably, given that we're going through a pandemic right now and everyone's just trying to figure out how to get through it in the safest way. So we've been working with other bar owners and the city to try to come up with a, a plan that everyone can be comfortable and confident that will really help mitigate disease transmission in bars. And, and uh, you know, that plan has been presented to the city and then up to the county level. And then we're really eager to see, you know, what uh, what transformations happened with it and will get presented to the state soon here. And then, of course, to see what results will come come out of the state's uh, decision. And I mean, we're, of course, really eager to open back up. But it's it's been great working with other bar owners, getting to know other bar owners and tap room owners, because that is also another thing right now is trying to get a better understand how bars are similar and bars are different from from each other and, and particularly with tap rooms in mind. We, we are a bit of a different uh, a different beast given that we have the manufacturing side of things and, and all that entails. But in the end, most of all of us rely upon our tap room or bar sales. Uh, so it's, it's been good to be able to unite and, and try to make some good things happen. 
And I know some people who may not be aware of this situation, but it sounds like even though you can be open for curbside pickup, sales are pretty down for you guys. Is that correct? Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, so curbside sales floated us pretty well for a little while, but then once all restaurants reopened and people could go to a restaurant and have a drink the same they would at a bar, we saw a huge drop off on curbside sales, not to the fault of anyone. I mean, a lot of people just want to get out of their house at this point and have a drink as opposed to just picking up a bottle and going back home. But yeah, ever since restaurants opened, unless we're doing some kind of promotion, which we are now a lot, there's, there's a, a big drop off in sales. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think it's funny when people kind of think about think about businesses and bars, we sort of equate them together, right? We're like, oh, restaurants are open, they're doing okay. Bar, you know, bars are also in the same position, but that's just not the case. So, and is, do you guys have any other plans moving forward that you're working on or thinking about other creative ideas that you're kind of developing? So, so one thing that we're trying to do, and we've actually been trying since the pandemic started, is get our bottling going so that we can start distributing 22-ounce bottles throughout the community and then hopefully into other communities as well. We spent a lot of time and energy and money on a bottling line that didn't end up working for us. So we ordered another one, but everything is so backed up right now that we've been waiting nearly two months, but it should be here any day. And then we're going to start going to Whole Foods, Total Wine, Rayleigh's, anywhere that'll to pick us up is where we're going to start. So look for Black Rabbit Mead Company on shelves in the near future. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for sitting down with me today. I know you guys are busy. Is there anything else that you think we should talk about or would be good for people to know? With uh, bars and particularly tap rooms not being able to be open right now, if that's something that's concerning to you, if you feel as though that bars and tap rooms really help enrich our community, enrich your life, then we just ask that you let that be known to your community and you tell those folks in power right now, the folks that have power to make decisions that you think that bars can safely reopen and that you're excited to support uh, bars, not only safely reopening, but, but being able to go to bars and being safe and holding everyone accountable so we can all have a, a nice drink and raise a glass to the future in which all of the, this craziness is behind us. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Melody Rose, Tabitha Mueller, Jake Conway, and Will Truce for being on the show this week. If you like listening to the podcast, consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you like to listen. If you have comments, questions, or just want to tell us what a good job we're doing, you can email us at joey at theenvyindie.com or jacob at theenvyindie.com. And if you want to sponsor the podcast, you can email editors at theenvyindie.com. Our theme song was written and performed by Reno Band People With Bodies. You can find more of their music on Spotify and Bandcamp. Additional music on this week's episode comes from Lance Conrad and Storyblocks. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.